you for being here in the house of the Lord on a good Sunday summer month. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 will be our text. You may just want to hang out in Peter this morning as we'll be using go. A lot of different scriptures from the epistle of Peter. And uh, we preached here last week as well. And um, between last week and this week, we're going to cover quite a bit of this book of the Bible or this epistle of scripture that Peter wrote. But I would encourage you that uh, maybe this week, it's a very short uh, book. Maybe you would read the book of 1 Peter. would be a good follow-up and supplement to the sermons. And I would recommend maybe you do that if you have time. But this morning, the sermon title is, How Will You Respond? How will I respond? How will we respond? How will you respond? And it's from the series we've been talking about, Live and Let Live. And we've been taking the seven characteristics that a biologist would use to determine physical life. And we've taken those seven characteristics and we have correlated them to spiritual things and spiritual life. And so today we are down to responding to our environment. And after this, there are two more, two more characteristics that we'll cover. And then on Vision Sunday, we'll preach and cast the vision. But how will you respond? How will I respond When I uh, thought about how living things respond to their environment, I I went online and and used Google, and I just typed in to see about animals and how animals might respond. And the first thing that comes up, and we're very familiar with this, animals have an instinct. They have instinct. They respond naturally to certain things. When I pull in my driveway, as I did a few days ago, and that raccoon that steals my cat's food and that hangs out on our back deck and looks through the window at us, he comes running, wobbling, because he's eaten so much of my food, he comes wobbling out of the garage and out the backyard. Why does he do that? He heard us coming. There is an instinct that animals have. We were hiking the other day, and you thought I just ate, didn't you? But I, I, I. We were hiking the other day, and, and there were two deer, and we were just a little bit, starting to get just a little bit nervous because the deer were not following natural instinct, and they kept lingering there in the path, and we were getting just a little too close, made me just a little nervous. Now, I didn't admit it, and one of the kids said something to Donna, and she said, the deer won't hurt you. I'm thinking, well, I don't know if the deer will hurt us or not, but it's a little too close for my comfort. And finally, instinct took hold, and the deer scrambled off into the, into the woods. Now, I would say that we have instincts, and we probably do as, as creations of God. And let me be very clear, I've said it before, we are not animals. We are created in the likeness and the image of God. I think we do have instincts, but I I use a term, and I believe the Bible uses a term that we should think about more. We have a conscience. We have a conscience. And, And even before we knew or know everything about God and even about God's word, deep down inside of us, we really do know right from wrong. And we teach and we preach that when a child, whatever age that might be, when they begin to be able to decipher from right and wrong, then we call that the age of accountability. And at that point, they need to come to know Christ and they need to come to salvation and, 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 and start serving their lives for, for God. 
but we have a conscience. Now, the Bible teaches us that we can suppress our conscience. We can sear our conscience with a hot iron, symbolically speaking. We can choose to ignore our conscience. Have you ever been deep down, I shouldn't say this, I shouldn't say this, I shouldn't say this, and then we say it. Have you ever been there, done that? Now, sometimes that's the Holy Spirit, but sometimes that's just flat out our conscience. Sometimes it's just common sense. <laughs> but we have a conscience, and, then, and that helps us respond in our in, environment. And the more we pour into our conscience the things of God and biblical things, the better we're going to respond to things around us. But plants, how many know that plants respond to their environment? I read an article, and this may disturb you. We may worry about what others hear us say or, or what, who's around when we say certain things. But I read this article this week or, or parts of it that said the plants might be listening. You say, uh-oh, what if I said in the garden? The plants may not have ears, but according to this article that came out in January 19th, 2019, they did some research using a, a certain type of evening primroses. I don't know what type of flower that is exactly, but the research, they, they tested to see if the plant could hear, in a sense, what was going on around it. And they found that when, when certain uh, bees would buzz past the plant, that the sugar within the nectar of those, of those flowers would actually go up about 20%. As if the plant was hearing the bee as it was coming by, and that, that nectar would increase so that it would entice that, that bee into it. And then it seemed, they said in the research, that the flowers could even tune out the irrelevant background noises that were around them. Now, I say to us this morning that if plants potentially can quote-unquote hear how much more should we as human beings be able to really hear? And here's where I'm going with that. Many places in the gospel, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Many times he, he gave a great truth, a great parable, a great teaching, and he would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And, and so my question this morning is, how will we respond? And so within this environment, this world, this society in which we live, Who's the main voice that, that we're going to be listening to? You see, true listening equals both understanding and then responding in the right way. It's one thing to come to church and, and to hear the word of God taught, sung, preached, etc. But but it can just be, if we aren't careful, it can just be background noise and not really take root in our heart and our lives. But when we really hear, we listen. And when we really listen, we respond and it makes a difference. And we begin to do like the old song said, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Look with me, please, to 1 Peter, verse 4, starting at verse 17. And here's our text this morning. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? David Jeremiah said it this way. He said, just as Jesus cleansed the temple, Peter is urging the church then and now, I believe, to cleanse ourselves. 
One version, and it's not gonna be on the screen, but one, one version said it like this way. It's judgment time for God's own family. We're first in line. It starts with us. Think what it's gonna be like for those who refuse God's message. So if you find life difficult because you're doing what God said, take it in stride, trust him. He knows what he's doing and he'll keep on doing it. And I wanted to put up the New Living Translation here. It said, for the time has come for judgment and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news. Verse 18, and also if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to God who created you for he will never fail you. Can I get a good amen for the reading of God's word? I'm talking about judgment. And I wanna be careful how I preach this morning. And I wanna to try to articulate it clearly this morning of, of what is on my heart to preach, if that's okay. When I'm talking about judgment, there are some different ways we could go with this scripture. There are some different ways we could talk about judgment. One is God is the one and only righteous judge. God will judge sin. God will judge this world and God will judge you and I. But the way I want to go this morning, after establishing that, and we all believe that, we know that, then I could look here in the middle and I could say, I could just preach this morning and I could rail against sin. I could rail against what's happening in our world and in our society. And we would all clap. We would all cheer. We would all agree. I could preach against things that, that, that from, from abortion to gender identity to all the sins that are rampant in our world. And can I tell you that those things are sin? But if I were going to have fidelity to the text this morning, there are times to preach about God's judgment, amen? amen. There are times for me to identify in this pulpit things that God's word calls sin and sin is sin and it still be sin. And I think you know me well enough already, you know I'm going to preach against sin in love, in love. But I will preach against sin in love if it's biblical. But the fidelity to the text this morning, if it's okay, is pointing its finger and its mirror right back at me and you. If we read that text, he's saying that the judgment, the, the judgment begins at God's house among God's people, God's own family. And can I be very careful this morning as I'm preaching, but can I say that I feel like maybe we've made the mistake throughout the years and the decades that we've come to church so much and we just kind of get our kicks off of putting down the world and, and, and identifying what the world's doing when maybe, just maybe, in love we should do some preaching and teaching and stir around our own roots and ask ourselves the question, how are we responding to this? Because the answer is not going to come from the White House or from the Capitol building or from the Supreme Court. The answer is not going to come from any civic organization or anything out in this world. And many things are doing good things, don't get me wrong. But the true answer for our society and the world that we live in is God's people being moved upon and used by God's Spirit. And if we are going to reach this world, we're not going to reach this world by thinking they need to do better. We're going to reach this world by us doing better. And it starts with us. 
Amen. So we got to judge ourselves. Amen. Thank you. Judging ourselves. Let me tell you what we need to do. I looked up that definition. When it applies to us, we need to make considered decisions. We need to come to sensible conclusions. We need to think before we speak. We need to think before we act. And we need to think biblically. How will we respond to this environment that we live? Let me talk about one thing that we we must do. We must define reality. And then we must live out our Christian faith and our Christian walk in that reality. A confused world needs a committed church. Confused. Have you ever been confused? Unable to think clearly? Lacking clear direction? Lacking clear discernment? Not knowing what to do? My wife tells me all the time that I overthink things. Maybe I'm just confused. I don't know. But have, have you ever been confused? Have you ever taken a medication that has just caused you to be hazy and, and confused? It's not fun, is it? Have you ever been like me and found yourself out uh, driving around and your GPS won't pick up and you're confused? You don't know which way to go. Confused. Can I tell you with all love, we live in a world that is very confused. And we have the answer to that. Let me define reality for a moment. There's an article in the Evangel, and as you go out the the lobby this morning, there's a stack of Evangels there. If you want to pick one up, you can read this article. It's on page 7, I think, uh, by Lance Kolkmeyer, the editor. It It was just published, August 2019. And here's a quote that he made, and follow with me here. He said, Biblical illiteracy is breeding moral degeneracy throughout the United States. Biblical illiteracy people not knowing the word of God. And that is breeding moral degeneracy throughout the United States. According to Barna Research Group, get this, 60% of Americans can't even name five of the Ten Commandments. Think about that. George Barna said, after he did this research, he said, well, no wonder... No one is living right because they don't know what the commandments are. And I ask us a question, whose responsibility is it to be preaching, teaching, and showing the way? It begins with us, doesn't it? Let me follow here. If we ignore the Bible, if we are ignorant of the Bible, there were four things that this article told us. One, we're going to be more likely to disobey God. If we're ignorant of the Bible, two, we're going to most likely lead impure lifestyles. If we are ignorant of the Bible, three, we're most likely going to engage in evil. And fourthly, if we are ignorant of the Bible, we are going to most likely be dominated by sin. And sadly, this is an apt description of American society today. Albert Mueller, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, had a quote I want to share with you. He said, while Americans, now now listen to this, while Americans, evangelical Christians, are rightly concerned about the secular worldview's rejection of biblical Christianity, and we're right to be concerned by that, but he goes on to say, we ought to give some urgent attention to a problem much closer to home. Everybody say home. What is that? Biblical illiteracy. 
He said, this scandalous problem is our own and it's up to us. It's up to us to fix it. We need to diagnose ourselves. We need to diagnose ourselves. If, let me give you an example. If my car were to start having trouble, I wouldn't diagnose my car. You don't want me to look under your hood, nor do you want me to look under my own hood. I can put gas in it. I can start it. Now I don't even have to put a key in. You just push a button. Man, easy peasy. Don't even have to open the doors anymore. You just walk up and they open up. Well, not physically open up, but they unlock. But you don't want me to diagnose your car. My heat pump right now on the main level of the house, we're not cooling. I'm just trying to ignore it. I just go upstairs and try to ignore it. But I'm going to have to get somebody to come and diagnose what is going on. If you have an ailment in your body, sometimes we go to a doctor and we we have them diagnose us. But can I tell you how much more should we diagnose ourselves with the help of the Holy Spirit, looking to the standard of God's word, amen, and diagnose where we are in life. So Kochmeyer wrote some questions, and we're talking right here just a little bit about knowing the Bible and biblical illiteracy. He said that pastors ought to quiz their congregations. And I had a half a mind to do that, and one day I might. (laughs) You say, tell me ahead of time, pastor. You know I used to be a teacher, and sometimes that just kind of comes right back out. We might have a pop quiz one morning, just pass around some sheets of paper and take a quiz. I don't know. But he said we ought to ask our congregation some questions. Why did God create? Now you think about this. Think if you know the answers this morning. Why did God create man and woman? What is grace? How do we communicate grace to other people so that they'll know? What's the purpose of water baptism? What does it mean when we say the verbal inspiration of of the Bible? What does it mean to be sanctified and how does that take place? These are questions we we should know answers to. What are three truths about the Holy Spirit? Could you tell someone if they came up to you today and said, tell me about the Holy Spirit. Tell me three things about the Holy Spirit. Would we be able to answer them? And then other significant questions could be added or substituted. But my point is a confused world needs a committed church. And if we don't know the answer, they're going to get an answer, but it's not going to be the right one. Is it all right if I preach with love this morning? May we redouble our efforts to know the word of the living God. And there's no excuse for any one of us sitting in this room that we cannot learn and grow and know more about God's word. But in this world that we live, you see the picture of the lady there in despair, kind of perplexed on the, on the screen. More and more we live in a society where people have no frame of reference at all about biblical values or biblical teachings and the responsibility more and more is going to fall to us. Can we tell them? Can we explain this hope that we have in Christ Jesus? Yes, we must live it out. Yes, they need to see the example in our lives. Yes, our lives will be different as Christians and people will notice that. But there comes a time we must know how to articulate our faith. And I wonder if Christians, if we're not failing in that sometimes or if we're not lacking in that sometimes. When I see Muslims who can go line by line and word by word and explain their beliefs. But what about us as Christians? Do we know what we believe? Do we know why we believe it? And can we articulate it? I'm not here to bash us this morning. 
I'm not here to bash us this morning. I'm here to encourage us and prompt us to get deeper into God's word and study to show ourselves approved as Paul wrote to Timothy. A confused world needs a committed church. Now I'm defining reality right here and and another part of reality is that we have a hurting world. Doesn't take us very long. We can leave this place today and within 30 minutes we'll see people who are hurting. Doesn't take us very long to see that. And I wanna try to make a point here this morning and it's this. And it's the point that Peter made. If you wanna look with me at 1 Peter 4.12, one of the big themes of the, of the epistle of Peter is about suffering for God's glory. And I wanna tell you this morning that sometimes we don't understand why we suffer. Sometimes we don't understand why we go through the things that we go through. I can look around this congregation and I can think of some that aren't here this morning and it seems like that many have gone through their own valleys of suffering recently. But I have good news for you this morning that suffering is a purpose and God has a plan to bring us through our suffering and to use our suffering to glorify God. And many times the hurting that we have faced in our lives gives us the ability to have empathy for those in this world who are hurting now. Look with me, please. Starting at verse 12 in in the fourth chapter of Peter. Peter writes this, Beloved, do not think it strange. Don't be surprised. Concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, and I wanna tell us this morning that as the end comes, as we live in the last days, which we are, I believe, in the last days, before the coming of Christ, more and more we are going to face a reproach for the name of Christ. The antichrist spirit that is spoke of within the or within the, the New Testament is present and prevalent and only increasing and growing in this world that we live. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. But look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him, here it is, glorify God in this matter. A hurting world needs to see a healing Christ. And sometimes God's people suffer. But if we suffer well, We can glorify God. Oh, help me preach this morning. If we suffer well, we can glorify God and we can be a testimony about Him and about His healing power and His sustaining power. And the world needs to see that. They need to see it lived out. You see, I'm preaching to us this morning. I'm preaching about us judging ourselves and I'm saying to us, as hard as it might be, as hard as it might be, when we go through a trial, when we go through a test, may we stay sweet in our souls. 
Maybe allow God to be glorified through it because there's a hurting world that needs to see us, that, that we're sustained through the hard times. Am I preaching all right this morning? Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. Verse 17, back to our text. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Judgment, examining ourselves. Judgment, making clear decisions. Judgment, making biblical decisions. Judgment, being sensible. It's time that judgment begins at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18, now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. Not preaching an easy thing this morning, but it is a rich thing. How will we respond? How will we respond? A hurting world needs a healing Christ. And then one part, other part about uh, uh, defining our reality is We live in unsettled times. Don't we live in unsettled times? We do not know from day to day what we're going to see come across our Facebook news feed. We're not going to see, or what we're going to see come across on CNN or or, or NBC or the news or Fox or whatever. We live in unsettled times. But when Peter was writing this letter, if you study it out, he was writing it to a people who were also living in unsettled times. And I want to tell us this morning that we can have a hope by looking to our past and knowing where we've come from. We can have a hope in our present time and we can have a hope in our future. And I believe that throughout the book of Peter, he embodies that whole entire hope that we can have in unsettled times. Peter was writing to them, and in one place he called them pilgrims. Pilgrims. I want to remind us that that this is not our final home. We are passing through. And whether it be the good things of life or the bad things of life, may we not attach ourselves too deeply to either. We're pilgrims. We're passing through this land, and, and Peter was reminding them of this. No doubt Peter thought about the past when he was writing this to them because many of these very people, in fact, some scholars say at least three out of the five people groups that he was writing to here or churches that he was writing to here were probably there on the day of Pentecost when he preached. And a lot of them got saved and they went back to these areas and they started churches and the gospel grew where they were at. But I believe Peter had a frame of reference in mind and he remembered that day of Pentecost when God poured out his power and his spirit upon the church. And he remembered that past event. And I want to remind us that sometimes in the present, we may not feel God. We may not be experiencing all the things that we have in the past, but we can look and we remember that God has blessed us before and he will do it again. God was faithful in the past. He will be faithful again in the present and in the future. And then Peter is writing to these folks knowing that the future for them is not a bright future from the secular standpoint. 
The Roman persecution of that time was increasing and intensifying. And can I tell you, can I just tell you this morning with love, let me word it the right way, but secularly speaking, our future isn't very bright. Secularly speaking, governmentally speaking, worldwide speaking, in the last days, the Bible said things will wax worse and worse. Morally speaking, we are unsettled and it's only gonna get worse. We are debating things now. Did you ever think that we would be debating whether someone is born male or female? Would you ever think that divisions, school divisions that are locally would be changing their database and taking off the terms mother and father and putting on their guardian one and guardian two? We are living in unsettled times and it's not going to get any better from that standpoint. But we do look for a future hope, an inheritance that is incorruptible, not made by hands, that is beyond this life. And we must remind ourselves that this world is our temporary home. And we have an eternal home that we are going to go to one day. This world needs to see us live well. They need to see us suffer well. They need to watch us serve well. They need to be able to hear us articulate well. A hurting world needs a healing Christ. What else do we need to do? We need to declare truth. Would you go with me to 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4? We'll hit these points quickly because really there are, a lot of them are a review from a few weeks ago. We're responding to our environment this morning. We're responding to our environment this morning. One way is, is to define reality and to live out Christ-like principles. Another way is to declare truth. And may I add in love. The first truth we must declare, 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, is this beautiful truth of salvation. We talked about it a few weeks ago. We preached about it a few weeks ago. We must be born again. This new birth, this regeneration, this doctrinal truth of regeneration when we come to Christ and he makes a new creature out of us. First Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I know that we must live out the gospel, but again, we must be able to declare the joyous doctrine of salvation. Sister Allison said it in the Sunday school lesson last week, and I'll repeat it here. Not everybody goes to heaven. I don't say that happily or boastfully or, or any gleefully. She didn't say it that way either, but it is true. Can I tell you that there have been some funerals that I have preached that I couldn't stand there and say that so and so has made it to be with the Lord? Really, I can't ever say that. It's really God can only give the righteous judgment, amen? 
But it makes it a whole lot easier if somebody has lived the life and they have professed Christ and made a public declaration and, and we, can, we can hang on that and we can tell the family that, you know? But only God really knows. Preacher can't preach me in or out. But there have been funerals that I have stood in and I have done my best to comfort the family, share some memories about the person, and present the gospel. But in my heart, I didn't know if that person made it. Can I tell you that the only people who are going to make it to heaven are those who have been saved, gloriously saved through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There is no other path. That is not a popular message today. You can go on the airways and talk about God all day long, but then you start saying Jesus No one wants to hear the name Jesus, but there is still no other way whereby men can be saved but through and by Jesus Christ. He is still the way and the truth and the life. And we have a message that must be shared that Jesus is the way. He is the truth, the life. He is the hope to heaven. We can't compromise that. We must declare this glorious gospel. Secondly, we must declare separation. What do you mean separation? Well, go with me. First Peter chapter two. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Separation. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. There are things that we must abstain from. If I go to a town meeting and they're gonna vote on the dog catcher and I don't like either of the people, then I'm gonna abstain. I'm not gonna vote for either one of them. I'm I'm gonna stay out of it. Abstain. The same is true with things that are happening if they're not biblical, I shouldn't be engaged in them. If they're sinful, I should abstain from them. There is a godly standard. He said right here, a conduct that is honorable. I'm not preaching legalism this morning. I'm not giving you a rule of list of this and that. I want to tell you that if we want to serve God and we want to please God and we want to live holy before God, I want you to know the Holy Spirit and the Word of God will tell us what is right and what is wrong. I don't have to give a a, a list of rules and I don't have to, to say this and that, but I want to tell you, I want to preach when we talk about holiness, this book will tell us how to live holy. It tells us what to abstain from and what to do. And everything is not right. Everything's not acceptable. Everything is not pleasing to God. We should have excellence in the evidence of our lifestyles. The world needs to see this. You say, Pastor, I wish you had just preached on the world today and just railed against them. You're all over us this morning. I'm all over myself this morning. But the fidelity of the text said that it's time for us now to judge ourselves. So there's salvation that we should proclaim. There's separation that we should declare. And then finally, I want to hit this topic very briefly 
There's this theme within First Peter about submission. Everybody say submission. By the very nature of that word, I, I, I'm not crazy necessarily about submitting. But Peter tells us there's some things and people and, and institutions, etc., that that are biblical, watch me now, that we should submit to. I looked up that word submission. It's the act of accepting or yielding to a superior force, or it's an act or fact of accepting or yielding to the will or authority of another person. Some synonyms are humility. Some synonyms are meekness. Boy, I'm just preaching tough today. Sometimes it's hard to be humble. Sometimes it's hard to be meek, isn't it? Maybe it's just me, but I'll I'll step on my own toes. Sometimes it's hard to be humble. Sometimes it's hard to be meek. Sometimes it's hard to bite my tongue. But submission is a theme all throughout 1 Peter. If you look, we're not going to read these verses, but for those of you who might be taking notes, you can look at 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. And it talks about submission to government. Uh Uh-oh, submission to government. I want to say very clearly this morning that God has called me to be a preacher and not a politician. And I don't think it's going to be very likely that you would ever catch me in this pulpit talking politics or telling you to vote for any certain person or, or this or that because I don't want to diminish the role of preaching the gospel. But there are uh, issues that become biblical issues that we must preach about and give scriptural references to. But here he tells us to have submission to the government. And in this day, in this hour in which we live, there is such a disrespect for authority. Am I right this morning? What happened to the days when I could disagree with someone's policy, but I could still show respect to the person? And it is on each side from the left wing to the right wing. And everywhere in the middle. But here, Peter tells us to submit to government. And let me tell you, we are to follow the laws of the land. As long as those laws and those rules are not contrary to the scripture. And that includes paying our taxes. I just throw that in for extra right there. In 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, he talks about submission to masters. Now, we don't have masters, thankfully, in this society in which we live, but we do have employers. And can I preach right here for just a moment? If I'm working for somebody and they're paying me to do that work, I need to do it as unto the Lord first. Do it with excellence, do it fairly, and do it without complaining. How can I be a light for Christ in this world in which we live if I'm going around the workplace grumbling, complaining, backbiting, gossiping, etc., etc., etc. But what the world needs to see is a good attitude. Everybody say attitude. attitude. Maybe it should be an attitude of gratitude. I thank God I have this job. <laughs> and that employer might be rough. They might be gruff. They might be cranky, but we might be the only Christians that they're seeing in their lives. 
We should submit to our employers. We should show fairness to our employers, respect to the authority over us on the workplace. And then he talks about in in many different places, and there's other places in the scriptures, and and this would be a whole sermon series in itself, but I just would be remiss to not mention 1 Peter 3.12, and there's to be rightful submission and honor and love and respect in the family. God has a defined way we should live our lives as families. Finally, I want to give one final point this morning, and we'll close. We should be defining reality. We should be declaring truth and we should be determining destiny. What do you mean, pastor, determining destiny? Deciding now how to live will determine our future. Do you have a retirement account? You're determining your future. You don't have a retirement account? You're determining your future. And the earlier you start, young people, the better. But what we do now affects where we're at tomorrow. What we do now affects where we are 10, 20, 30 years from now. And, and, and no wonder when it comes to salvation even, the scriptures say today is the day of salvation. And I say to us all, today is the day to start asking ourselves some questions. Why? Because we are the influencers in this world. We are the salt in this world. We are the light in this world. We We are the godly ambassadors in this world. It's us. It's nobody else. There's no plan B. There's nobody else. So let me ask some questions. Where are we headed? Where are we headed? Where's your daily walk heading? Are you in step with Jesus? Are you living in line with godly principles? I can't answer these questions for any individual, but we should ask ourselves this morning. We need to define reality. We need to declare truth. We need to determine our destiny by living out today. Living out today. So as they come this morning and get a song ready for us and we're gonna have an altar call, pray and search our hearts a few moments before we leave here, I'm reminded this, that 1 Peter is a forceful letter. It's a forceful letter. David Jeremiah said it this way. A forceful letter urging an active faith and holy living. 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. The story is told about a man by the name, or even it was a pastor by the name of Charles Sheldon. And Charles Sheldon, in the late 1800s, this pastor, he went out into the streets and he he put on beggar's clothes and it was was freezing cold and, and, and even turned into a blizzard eventually. But he walked the icy streets of his city for many days and he saw many of his own parishioners, but yet they didn't recognize him. But yet they didn't do anything for him. He came back and he shared his adventures to his congregation the next Sunday. And then out of his experiences, Charles Sheldon wrote what became one of history's best-selling Christian novels. He called it In His Steps. But there was something that came out of this book that you will most likely be familiar with because 
maybe about 10 years ago by now, this little phrase took hold again. And out of his book that he wrote there in the late 1800s, and he he wrote it based on his experiences of going out as a, a beggar and seeing how people would respond to him, seeing how church people would respond to him. The phrase was this, what would Jesus do? Remember when that all came through about 10 years ago and we got the little bracelets and WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, I wanna tell us this morning, that's still a good question to ask. That's still a good question to ask. If you would stand with me this morning and and, uh, Amy, if you can go to that very last picture. I was driving down the road hospital visits and different things this week and something just didn't seem right. Now let me preface it. You know my elevator doesn't always go to the top floor and I I don't always catch on to everything. But I'm thinking something's just not right. I'm not seeing everything. And I'm driving and I'm backing out of parking garages and I'm pulling in and and I'm going down 29 and I'm looking and and just something wasn't right. And then one day it, it hit me, you know, even a, even a blind hog or squirrel can find an acorn once in a while. And I found an acorn that day. It hit me. My mirror was off just a little bit. Not much. Maybe a fourth of an inch, maybe an eighth of an inch. It wasn't off much of anything but my mirror was out of kilter. And because my mirror was out of kilter, when I would look in the mirror to try to see what was beside me and behind me, around me, I wasn't seeing everything just right. And can I just say to us this morning, we serve the Lord, we love God, we try our best. We come to church. We, we want to do what's right. And, and can I just say every once in a while, our mirrors just get off a little bit. <laughs> and that's when we judge ourselves. That's when we examine ourselves. That day I rolled the window down. The first auto repair in my life and probably the last one. <laughs> Reached out the window and I very simply pushed the mirror It popped back into place. And I can see clearly now the rain is gone. (laughs) I could see. What a difference. What a difference. Just that one little adjustment. But I want to preach it just a little bit better to us this morning. It's not my own hand that can adjust my own spiritual mirror. But I want to tell you this morning, if you feel like things are just a little out of focus, the hand of the Holy Spirit is willing to reach down to you this morning and push your mirror back into place. And we can see clearly again. Do you want to see clearly again? Do you want to see the world around you with His eyes? Do we want to see clearly the life and the purpose that He has before us? Would you you bow your heads with me all over this building? Would Would you begin to search your heart as an individual? 
If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this altar is open for you. The invitation stands for you that you can come and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. If you feel like you have wandered away from the Lord and, and you say, I just need an adjustment. I want to come back. I want to kneel before Him. I want to get in alignment with Him. This altar is open for you this morning. But all over this building, I say, Lord, let us see clearly now. Let us see clearly. Let us be able to see this world around us with the eyes of Jesus Christ. Let us be able to see. Let us to be able to respond to our responsibility as Christians.